Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions podcast. Hi, if you're a regular listener to Undeceptions, you'll definitely know by now that I released a new book in 2021 called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. We're going to be back with season six in late February, but until then, I thought you might like this series of short readings from Bullies and Saints. It's kind of a cheat sheet for the book for those who don't want to read the whole thing, and I can respect that. And while you're in a podcast mood, why not take some time to look through our back catalogue of episodes? There are now over 60 episodes for you to get your teeth into over January. So take a look at some of the ones you might have missed. I hope you enjoy. Bullies and Saints an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history with John Dixon. The hatred and violence of the church is utterly dwarfed by the hatred and violence of non-religious causes through history. Hi, I'm John Dixon, and welcome to this super series on my new book, Bullies and Saints. Bullies and Saints is my best attempt to tell a century-by-century story of the bullies and saints of Christian history. Each episode, I'll give you a free excerpt from the upcoming Bullies and Saints audiobook. And in this edition, I just want to reflect briefly on Jesus' claim that disciples should look at the log in their eye before they see the speck in other people's eyes. And I just ask the question, might that not apply outside the church as much as inside? Some argue that Christianity's special contribution to history has been its violence and bigotry. 
the Crusades, Inquisitions, support of slavery, and so on. In a speech titled A Designer Universe, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Steven Weinberg declared, With or without religion, good people can behave well, and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. The statement is often quoted in sceptical circles. It gets a ringing endorsement from Richard Dawkins. And you can even buy t-shirts with the quotation printed on the front. Google, good people doing evil takes religion. Slim fit t-shirt. The context of Weinberg's quotation is interesting. He's talking about American slavery. He makes the point that Bible preaching on behalf of slavery allowed the good people of the South to feel comfortable perpetuating this dehumanizing practice. He mentions the anecdote of Mark Twain, who described his mother as a genuinely good person, Weinberg says, but who had no doubt about the legitimacy of slavery, because in years of living in antebellum Missouri, She had never heard any sermon opposing slavery, but only countless sermons preaching that slavery was God's will. The Bible makes good people do bad things. The argument has its difficulties. For one thing, while it's true that Christians were painfully slow in eradicating slavery, every anti-slavery movement we know of, whether in the 2nd, 5th, 7th or 18th centuries, was heavily populated by Christians. And the main arguments against slavery were not economic, political or scientific. They were theological. In chapter 10, I quoted the celebrated slavery scholar David Brian Davis. The popular hostility to slavery that emerged almost simultaneously in England and in parts of the United States drew on traditions of natural law and a revivified sense of the image of God in man. Even the natural law tradition Davis mentions here is quasi-religious. He's not referring to the natural law philosophy of the ancient Greeks. Aristotle had famously argued that nature intended a slave class. Nor is it a reference to the natural sciences of the 19th century, which could be and were used to demonstrate the Negro's unfitness for civilization, to quote one scientific text from the time. The natural law arguments of 18th and 19th century abolitionists were just a desacralized version of the Christian doctrine of the image of God. It was the view that all humans are equal by virtue of being, quote, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. There is a more obvious problem with the slogan, For good people to do evil, that takes religion. How do we account for the humanist heroes of the age who also owned slaves without any formal religion? Think of Thomas Jefferson, 1743 to 1826, the third president of the United States and a classic Enlightenment free thinker. He was openly not a Christian. Jefferson was also a prolific slaver who owned more than 600 slaves in his lifetime. It is surely obvious that good people, assuming that category is even valid, are well able to do evil without the influence of religion. I don't wish to take my argument any further than to say that Weinberg's famous witticism is difficult to maintain.
No historically informed believer will deny that Christians have participated in all that is worst in human history. But Christianity has not been a special contributor to evil. Egypt, Greece, Rome, Gaul, Saxony and England hardly needed the church to learn violence. All of these societies were doing just fine on the war front and the slave front before Christendom. In every part of the world, in every century, there have been divisions and bloody conflicts over land, honour, resources and revenge, as well as over ideologies. I don't wish to be impolite, but it might also be said that the hatred and violence of the church is utterly dwarfed by the hatred and violence of non-religious causes through history. The terror of 1793-94 to is such an interesting example, not because it resulted in so many unjust deaths, but because those killings were justified on wholly secular grounds. The beheadings, shootings and drownings were declared rational and even virtuous by a French intelligentsia that saw itself as enlightened, free from the ignorance of monarchy and church dogma. Think of the greatest wars of history. World War I, 1914 to 1918, resulted in 15 to 20 million deaths in just four and a half years. No one argues that this was a religious conflict. World War II, 1939 to 1945, led to the deaths of approximately 50 million people in six years. Again, no historian today suggests that religion played even a minor role in the motivations of the war. It is true that both the German and Allied forces prayed to the same God for safety, victory and eventual peace. But this doesn't make these wars religious any more than we can say they were Enlightenment wars, simply because all sides were steeped in modernity. The occasional attempt to suggest that Adolf Hitler's extermination of millions of Jews was motivated by some form of Christianity faces the impossible task of accounting for Nazism's well-documented hatred of Orthodox Christianity. And this is before we stop to contemplate the decidedly irreligious bloodshed of modern history. Joseph Stalin, 1878 to 1953, was responsible for the deaths of 15 to 20 million people in his Soviet Union. More deaths each week than the Spanish Inquisition managed to kill during three and a half centuries. One Central Committee member during Stalin's time described the conduct expected of party officials. Throw your bourgeois humanitarianism out of the window and act like Bolsheviks, worthy of Comrade Stalin. Don't be afraid of taking extreme measures. Better to do too much than not enough. And so they did. Stalin's true ideological successor in avowed atheism and applied communism was China's Mao Zedong, 1893 to 1976. His attempt at forced industrial revolution, dubbed the Great Leap Forward, inflicted severe, calculated famines on his people. His cultural revolution, designed to purge China of capitalists and traditionalists, stressed precisely Stalin's rejection of humanitarian nonsense. One of Mao's many mottos was, Mercy to the enemy, 
is cruelty to the people, which has the ring of Robespierre's revolutionary policy in Paris nearly two centuries earlier. Terror is virtue. This combination of large-scale thinking and lack of moral restraints, writes Jonathan Glover in his chilling Humanity, a Moral History of the 20th Century, enabled Mao to aim for the total reconstruction of life in China. The result of Mao's total reconstruction was between 10 and 50 million deaths. The third atheist regime is the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, led by the Swiss-educated Pol Pot, 1925 to 1998. One of the slogans of his reign of terror says it all. One or two million young people are enough to make the new Kampuchea. He was not quite as cruel as this adage implied. It is estimated that he killed only two million out of the total population of eight million. As Jonathan Glover writes, the regimes of Stalin and Mao each killed many more people, but to kill around a quarter of the population seems like the culmination of Stalinism. The shared central project of the three regimes was the total redesign of society in ways unrestrained by human feelings or morality. It wouldn't be fair to credit these unprecedented human catastrophes to atheism itself. Richard Dawkins is surely right when he says, I cannot think of any war that has been fought in the name of atheism. Why should it? Why would anyone go to war for the sake of an absence of belief? Fair enough. No one has gone to war or slaughtered millions in the name of atheism. I doubt that anyone has done anything, good or bad, in the name of atheism. But that's not the point. The more interesting question is, did the atheism of Stalin, Mao and Pol Pot, their absence of belief in a higher moral authority, contribute to their feeling that it was permissible to slaughter millions in pursuit of a new society? There is no necessary link between atheism and immorality. But it is equally true that atheism rationally permits a Stalin in a way that is not true of religion. Even the strictest inquisitor never imagined that he was allowed to kill an innocent. Thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new book, Bullies and Saints. Click over to Amazon.com where you can pick up a copy of the full audiobook or a print copy if you like the feel of paper in your hand, like I do. And if you've enjoyed the content, let me encourage you to go to the Undeceptions website where you'll find much more like it, including my Undeceptions podcast. That's undeceptions.com. See ya. An Undeceptions podcast.